Center Church, glad to be with you again for another week um, and uh, happily um, for a new series as we are now um, in a unique place uh, in the life of Center Church. I've been so elated that we have, as I'm sure sure it doesn't sound that way, but it's true, I've been so elated that we have been able to come back together as a community and now... um, as a church, I think what we're doing is um, ethically, ethical and socially responsible, and it also uh, allows us to, um, in, a, in a way that's, uh, in a way that makes sense, I think, in a way that's calculated, gather back together. And so what we're doing now, for those of you who do listen to the podcast and, um, and, and have been listening, uh, what we're doing now is uh, we have uh, two Sunday morning gatherings, one at 9 a.m., one at 11 a.m. and we ask that um, you that you pre-register for those so that we can anticipate uh, a total number um, and know who who exactly would be on a waiting list. So that's a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. gathering at Eurasia. Uh, we also have um, John's Center Community, uh, John and Ben's Center Community, which continues on Tuesday evenings, and then the podcast. For those folks who um, may not be able to join us on any given Sunday or those who are, uh, for various reasons, being particularly cautious at this time. So uh, we have just concluded our series on the parables of Jesus, which could have gone on indefinitely. I found it personally to be a wonderful opportunity to Uh, examine these parables again for the first time with this kind of attention in years. And it's been an opportunity for me to grow and think more deeply about the words and teachings of Jesus. I hope Um, it's been useful for you as well. Our next series doesn't address specifically a book or a genre in the Bible, um, but will instead focus on the nature of expectancy and what it is to live a Christ-like existence in our current moment. And so the next many months will be devoted uh, to that question as we pay attention to exploring Christ's likeness uh, in our current moment. With that in mind, uh, let's begin with a quote from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who is an author and scholar, as well as a Jesuit priest and paleontologist. Um, This is de Chardin as represented in in Desmond Tutu's book, um, No Future Without Forgiveness. One day, the gospel tells us, The tension gradually accumulating between humanity and God will touch the limits prescribed by the possibilities of the world. And then will come the end, the presence of Christ, which has been silently occurring in things 
will be suddenly revealed. Like a flash of light from pole to pole. Breaking through all the barriers within which the veil of matter and the water tightness of souls have seemingly kept it confined, it will invade the face of the earth. Like lightning, like flood, the attraction exerted by the Son of Man will lay hold of all the whirling elements in the universe so as to reunite them or subject them to his body. Only 20 centuries have passed since the ascension. What have we made of our expectancy? It's that question, what have we made of our expectancy, which drives, uh, serves as the thesis, the through line throughout this entire series, and uh, is, of course, the focus of today. What have we made of our expectancy? Deschardin observed that this expectancy and all of the work that has been given to us as a testimony to it has been disconcerted. It's, it's, it's been um, unsettled. It's been frustrated by the resistance of the world to the good. The Chardon died sometime in the 1950s and as you listen to this long quote from from him, it, by the way, putting aside um, the precision of its theology and your exact views of end times and eschatology, that's, that's not why I chose to open with his insight. Whatever your views on those kinds of things are, and obviously he's using... Um, elevated language and and speaking more like a poet than a theologian. Whatever your views on on how things come to an end or change or transform, what's interesting is that Deschardin is speaking from a very different place and time than what we now occupy. But all that he is saying. Is, is true of this moment as well. He says again, only 20 centuries have passed since the ascension. What have we made of our expectancy? Um, himself speaking at, um, at a moment in human history where violence and discord and anxiety about the future was um, as high as it had ever been in modern memory, a time that could certainly be seen as worse than our own. Deschardin observes something essential, which is that the work that has been put before the follower of Christ and the community, which is at once a part of the restoration of the kingdom of God and a testimony to who Jesus is, has been profoundly unsettled by the resistance of the world. The world, again, understood broadly. The world is in our own broken, fallen, rebellious natures. The world as in systems that have broken down um, allegiances that should never have existed or misaligned. Like the world is in 
an age away from God, right? There's a resistance of the world to good. And I'm interested in the question, not only what we have made of our expectancy, but what should we now be making of our expectancy? And now what we see in place of an expectant dependence on Christ, uh, what we see in ourselves and others, as I was saying, is something else entirely. We see pessimism. We see a presumption of ill intent or worst intent, not only among strangers or people that we would, if we're being honest, identify as outside of our tribe. But we have a certain kind of pessimism about one another, the people that we may be closest to. And so I offer these things to you, not really and sincerely as an open question. Where do you see this in your communities? Where do you see this in yourselves? Where do you see the presumption of worst intent? We, I mean, we just finished a series on the parables, and there's a reason that Jesus tells these stories. I, I want to rewind back to a fundamental insight concerning the parables, which is that, yes, it's what the parables mean to say or teach or tell us about what they mean to communicate. That is absolutely a part of the parable. But it's not just what the parable says. It's also what the parable is meant to do. And the parable is meant to provoke. And and there's a reason that Jesus was so provocative. Because he is often in his parables identifying the most, and sometimes rightly, hated and unpopular people in society, within your tribe. And he is saying incredibly hopeful and challenging things about those people, suggesting that we see them as our neighbor, suggesting that we entirely abandon the category of enemy. And when we are pessimistic, when we are presuming worst intent, we can't at once we can't at once do that and see the other as neighbor in place of a hopeful expectancy, a focused expectancy on the good work of the individual and the body of Christ. We observe in ourselves and others a kind of skepticism that, in my view, has evolved into something um, certainly more destructive, which which is a cynicism of a kind, some kind of skepticism that, over time, under pressure, has, invo- has, has evolved into cynicism. And so do you see cynicism in yourselves? Do you see cynicism in one another? Um, 
if we if we might, I mean, these are in many ways synonymous, but if we might identify the skeptic as someone who, by default, who kind of defaults to their default position is one of doubt or challenge or it's not always, I don't mean to use these words negatively really, or curiosity even, someone who is less likely to accept something necessarily at face value. We can see that, we can see the ways in which skepticism is useful within the body of Christ. But do you see in our time, in our shared communities and circles, do you see an evolution from skepticism into cynicism? This kind of empty and actually baseless default position of uh, rejecting um, rejecting the hopeful, rejecting a claim, a belief, simply because it it may seem too good to be true, or it may seem good at all. A posture of distrust and dislike for other people and ideas or positions that are not your own. In place of an expectant dependence on Christ, instead we may observe in ourselves and others disorientation. Have you noticed the depth at which and the extent to which People that you love, people within your community, and maybe even some of you have lost your sense of direction, have lost your orientation in the world in place of an expectant dependence on Christ. Have you observed isolation? Have you observed discord? Teilhard de Chardin says this. We have allowed the flame to die down in our sleeping hearts. In reality, we should have to admit, if we were sincere, that we no longer expect anything at all. What have we made of our expectancy? What should we make of our expectancy? So we'll be exploring this as we um, are back together as a community, um, as friends and as a family, which is, is, is in fact how I view uh, Center Church as a family. That's what we are, and it's more than ever what we must be. Friends to one another, family to one another, the living body of Christ. So whether you're listening um, and have not been able to join us or uh, whether you're able to attend some weeks and not others, as you come into these shared and sacred spaces, we come from very different internal spaces. And 
as we begin this new series, asking uh, this question of expectancy. I'd like us to, regardless of the differences that we begin with, um, center ourselves on John chapter 12. Uh, This is verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw everyone to myself. John 12, verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw everyone to myself. Or take something like John chapter 14, where Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the light, saying that to know God is to know the Christ. Or put more accurately, it is through the face and personage of Christ that we can experience, um, connection with the divine. We're going to unpack this claim in two, uh, in two points. And we're going to think through the implications of these points as we have at the centerpiece of our conversation today or the teaching today, John 12, uh, observation number one, your ethical grammar must flow from the one source of love, life, and light. Again, your ethical grammar must flow from the one source of love, life, and light. And um, just to frame this for a moment, um, all, all I mean by ethical grammar is the way in which we construct our role in our communities, in in our society, in the world that we are in with ourselves and with one another. Um, Our ethical grammar is the way we make meaning of what we believe is right and good in the world. And your ethical grammar is actually, it, it, it must originate, it must come from an ethical monotheism. Ethical monotheism essentially means that all humanity and all morality emanate from the one true God. And, and, and how could it not, by the way? How is it possible if, if there is a God and God is necessarily, by definition, all present? And if God is, by definition, transcendent, All humanity, therefore, comes from God, and all humanity, or rather all morality, therefore, comes from the one true God. Do not misunderstand what I'm, uh, well, I I should maybe frame it this way. I don't want to miscommunicate what I'm saying right now. I am not making the irritating and, and, um, and confused and ethnocentric claim that we have, um, we have the edge on what the one true God, what Christ, um, wants for us and for the world. There are many, many ways of, you know, it's that great image of, of, uh, you know, turning the diamond, right? There are many, many ways of understanding the scriptures. There are many, many ways of living out an ethical grammar that reflects the truth of Christ, the one source of love, life, and light. I mean, that's, I, I think that our community understands this and that that is a given. And so the fact that we affirm these things doesn't mean that the 2021 
um, American picture, and there isn't one picture of Christianity, is the picture of Christianity. Perhaps that's so obvious it need not be said. But for the fact that you have found yourselves rejecting the ways in which Christianity in the last year, in the last five years, in your culture, as you reflect on it, the ways in which um, that form of Christianity has represented the ethical grammar of Christ, the fact that you might be rejecting that um, or puzzled by it or frustrated, frustrated by it is, is, has nothing to do. It, in fact, has nothing to do with the degree to which you choose to embrace and work to live by your understanding of, of what Christ would have us, how Christ would have us treat and know and take care of one another at every level. This is the work that is necessary in embracing the full morality and through this continuing to understand our own identities in Christ. And that, that is a way of being in the world. It's actually what I'm talking about here. This acceptance of ethical monotheism and the ways in which we behave with one another that necessarily follows from that. This is, this is in fact, um, what it is to become wise, to learn, to live and navigate the world that we're in. And I should add that this, the ethical grammar that flows from the love, life, and light that is Christ, this entirely informs your view of, of one another, but it also entirely informs your view of yourself. Because, because this informs how we, um, what we believe about human nature. Hart, um, who I know many of you have been exploring the last six months or, or year, Hart describes the Christian view of human nature as wise. Hart describes the Christian view of human nature as wise. He says this. that Christian nature is wise precisely because it is so very extreme. It sees humanity at once as an image of the divine fashioned for infinite love and imperishable glory and as an almost inexhaustible wellspring of vindictiveness, cupidity, or, or greed, and brutality. Christians indeed, he goes on to say, have a special obligation not to forget how great and how inextinguishable the human proclivity for violence is, or how many victims it has claimed, for they worship a God who does not merely take the part of those victims, but who was himself one of them, murdered by the combined authority and moral prudence of the political, religious, and legal powers of human society. That insight alone is worth many conversations. Is the Christian view of human nature wise? And even as I'm reading this, 
are you aware in yourself and um, in those in, in the people in your life uh, with whom you're closest to, the, where you can make an accurate kind of evaluation of this? Do you see in yourself tendencies to to make this into a dichotomy and to choose either one or the other to either um, see portions. It's almost always this way because this is kind of a, a form of tribalism that shows up so often to see portions of humanity as divine, as, as, as infinitely lovable as um, representations of the glory of God. And at once see other portions of humanity as wellsprings of vindictiveness, greed and grossness and brutality the wisdom of a Christian ethic relocates this tension, the tension between the sacred and the profane. It relocates this tension so that it no longer exists between your tribe and someone else's tribe, but you see this line, this tension running through the center of every human heart and every human mind. And this is why we see these same frustrations running through the political and religious and legal systems that we have built. I mean, it's no wonder if humans are at once represented, uh, representatives of both vindictiveness and imperishable glory that the systems we build have the same confusions. If you want something brilliant and, and seemingly impossible, we have to work out together the implications of Jesus lifted up and drawing everyone to himself. And that. John chapter 12, this, this moment where the Christ is lifted up, not in power, but as a refutation of all of the powers, both of this world and of the spiritual world, that is the centerpiece. That is the guiding light for how we understand how to be abide in and, and live an ethical life, form an ethical grammar that is um, sourced, in, sourced in Christ. Is the accusation of the claim correct? That if we were sincere, that, that, that we no longer really expect anything at all? Is, is that the case, that we no longer really expect anything at all. It's my, my conviction that we can make much and should make much of our expectancy of how we show with our lives that we believe that Christ is not done with our world. And part of the reason I wanted to begin here is not because having had so many conversations with all, with you, usually individually, but sometimes in in small groups, um, it's 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 my uh, my view that it's it's not as if 
this is not a message that is being given to people who have quit on this project. It's a message to a community of people who are, um, I've, I've observed, um, understandably even, uh, wary and tired. And I just want to encourage you to ground yourself again to refocus on how we show with our lives that we believe that Christ is not done with our world. He's, that we, we believe that Christ through us, through the women and the men um, of the body, that Christ is not done with the people that need him most. I'm also interested, I'm very interested in us exploring honestly the things that are keeping us from enacting this grammar of expectancy, the things that are tripping us up. I'm interested to know concretely where we find the most resistance internally and externally to the wise and the moral life that resembles Jesus with his arms outstretched to all of humanity. Each age brings different challenges and to have clarity of vision, to live a life that shows we believe Christ is not done with the world, to be people who embrace the truth of Jesus. We have to practice identifying the personal and societal challenges to what we believe. And we have to practice identifying the internal and external challenges to what we believe. How you choose to live out the rest of your life hinges on what you believe about God and all of us. This does matter. It's not just an idea to kind of occupy you for some number of minutes. It, it does matter. It's, this is something I think that certainly is agreed upon by um, anyone who spent any real time thinking about um, the problem of morality and ethics and how we occupy the world. Um, if you're religious or not, your views on the nature of humanity, its origins, and its trajectory fundamentally shape how you live your life. And if you've not and, and, and what, even though maybe we can be good at not thinking about that, um, it, it, that comes at great cost because uh, if, if much or some of our work is, is, is merely to be distracted from considering how we should be in the world, then we're we're turning away from what it is to be human and heading toward something that is, that is subhuman. Point number one, again, your ethical grammar must flow from the one source of love, life, and light. Uh, and the second and final point, what God is not, what God is not, reaches infinitely out and infinitely in. And I know that that um, at this moment sounds like 
uh, an irritating riddle. Uh, not how it's not how it's meant. What God is not reaches infinitely out and infinitely in. So to frame this, let's start with Jeremiah chapter six, verses thirteen and fourteen. Here is Jeremiah speaking about this impending disaster for Jerusalem and Yahweh's anger with the way uh, that um, Jerusalem has uh, the, 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 the least among us, among these in Jerusalem had, had been treated and the abuse that people had suffered at the hands of uh, the powerful um, verse 13, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. Some really hard truths in that line alone. Obviously, Jeremiah did not, I mean, this is, this is a particular place and time toward a particular situation, but we can see that there are insights here about, about human nature more broadly. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Jeremiah goes on to say, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. My prayer is that we continue to become a community of people who don't pretend and who don't allow ourselves to be distracted or stalled or confused unnecessarily. And, and, and I'm not trying to, this is not an attempt at a pep talk. I'm trying to tell you uh, the truth as I understand it. And I'm trying to apprehend it myself. Um, it's, it's, my, it's my belief that we live for a particular time and moment. And there are there is important work for each of us to do individually and collectively in this particular time and moment. And we are um, we are at a place. Where at almost every level of analysis, there are unprincipled people seeking unjust gain and people claiming that there's peace when there is none. But our response to this and the path to continuing to do the good work that we're to do in the world is hard. It is a hard road and it's one that is not straightforward. And it, it almost always begins in a place that, that we don't want to begin. Evaluate and reevaluate this passage, John chapter 12, verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw everyone to myself who are you by implication of behavior or belief hoping this passage excludes? This is the value of the via negativa. God is other. We, in fact, must meditate. We must pay careful attention to what God is not. 
God is at once other and God is imminent. He is revealed only partially, but everywhere. God is at once other. And I'll talk about why it's valuable to meditate on what God is not. Um, there, I mean, the value is more than I can say, but um, at least at least a few reasons. And God is also imminent. He is revealed everywhere. Both of these things are at once true about God. What God is not or where God isn't, too often in churches and elsewhere, the question of conviction, growth, wisdom, is reduced solely to uh, relationships. That language functions uh, almost entirely um, on on the frequency of, of, on a relational frequency, right? So what have we, how have we wronged another individual? How shall we act wisely um, in this, you know, in in this interpersonal dynamic? Um, How do we grow in our relationships? And, these shouldn't be, these should be included. I mean, it's good that those things are included. And I, I include them here as we ask the question, um, what God is not. However, where God is not reaches infinitely out and infinitely in, which is to say that this absolutely includes looking outwardly. This absolutely includes exploring what God is not, where he isn't. And what he isn't, it includes the systems in which we participate. It includes the things we choose to consume, the places we choose to work or not work, the projects we take on, and those we ignore, and the things we are trying to acquire, and the ideas we gorge, and the parts of our intellectual lives we starve, and on and on. And for those of you who really want to jump into um, at least a slightly deeper part of the pool, this also where God is not also reaches into the systems in which we seem to be unable to um, extract ourselves from. And that's where we really get into some fascinating work. I, I care very much as we are looking at where God isn't and what God isn't, I care very much about dealing with the ways in which we take care of and love one another. But we also have to ask, what's, what water are we swimming in? And, and what is, and what's invisible to us and, and, are we doing, again, are we doing the ethical work? Are we engaging in a kind of way of being, a grammar of being that will cause us to become aware of things that were otherwise invisible to us? Point two, what God is not reaches infinitely out and infinitely in. It is worth our time and energy to, to observe to observe the world that we're in and to ask what about it comports with the kingdom of God as we understand it. And what about it is what about the world that we are in is, um, is at odds with at war with the kingdom that we claim allegiance to. 
And why does this, you know, at least on this side of like the, the fullness of the kingdom of God, why does this, why is it infinite? Why does it go on and on? Because as we continue as a species, um, whatever your views on, on the degree to which we are improving or declining, um, and there's interesting ways to organize uh, those data. But whatever your views on this are, as we continue to build and, and move towards something, I'm thinking of Yeats right now, so some of his more um, revelatory and apocalyptic poetry. As we're heading towards something, I mean, it, you, you may say that the center isn't holding, and it's and there are, there are these questions. I mean, are we building, you know, the Tower of Babel or the Kingdom of God? And um, I think that all of us um, at once are working on different projects, but it goes on and on because as we continue to build, we uh, foster in all that we do um, what is it, what is inside of us, and and in that way. In that way, we see ourselves perpetuating the things that God wants nothing to do with. But if we believe that we are followers of Christ, if we accept and follow Christ in his, in his way of being in the world, we trust that the Spirit of God, in spite of these true things about the human condition, the Spirit of God, and it is in fact the, the very Spirit of God that allows us to see what God isn't and where God isn't, and in doing so, reveals to us all the more how we are taking on the likeness of Christ. I believe the Spirit of Christ lives within us, calling us to repentance, forgiveness, and wisdom in this world. It's just the case that there is much more to do. Let's close with Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. I know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Central Church, blessings. We'll talk again next week.